Welcome to Real Herbalism Radio, recorded live at River Road Studios. Today's show is brought to you by Get Healthy Now with Candace. Get healthy now, not later, not before, already now, and not tomorrow, now, right? <laughs> okay, right now. <laughs> if you'd love to do a consult and look at ways that you can get more healthy in your life, that you can improve your current feelings of wellness and, and lifestyle, give me a shout. You can look up look me up at gethealthynow.com. Or get healthy now with Candice.com. Mm-hmm. Okay. Oh. And Occupy Medical. Occupy Medical is is changing. We have What? Yes, I know. It's really mm-hmm. weird. But we, I've always in the past said we're a street reach and we're still doing street reach, we're doing it a different way. We have a place in Springfield and we also have a clinic that we have opened and have been doing for the last couple of months in Eugene. And that's the street reach part where we're specifically working with people that are unhoused. The clinic that we have in Springfield is a building and we have two Mm -hmm. suites of it. And one part is for hygiene supplies and food for people that are are struggling. They can just come in and get whatever they need. Mm -hmm. And then we have the other part, which is the medical part with the herbal um, part of it and then the counseling as well as the integrated health part. And that is just because we have a place just like anybody that's coming out of being unhoused to being housed. They find all of a sudden all of these survival skills that they needed to have time for. They don't need to have time for it anymore because, you know, they got four walls around us and that's the same thing for us. So yeah, it's been it's great to be nice. able to burst out and do a whole bunch more projects. So so how can people contribute? Well, we are a 501c3 and that is um, – there's a bunch of uh, information that we have on Facebook and Twitter and on our website at occupy-medical.org. All right. And we're now uh, – our next sponsor is Mud Paw Design House, uh, formerly Hunter Creation. This is the first time we're talking about it oh, yeah. over the air, if you will. So Mud Paw Design House is a company that Candace and I run and own, and it is graphic design and website design. If you're looking for a website that will match your your branding of your, of your, your printed materials, we can help you out. Or – if you have uh, printed materials and need a website, we can help you out with that too. So let us know at mudpawdesignhouse.com. Uh, that's a mud paw. Mud, like a dog paw. Mud that's muddy. Yeah. or mudpawdesignhouse.com. That's cute. Right. <laughs> All right. And how about you, Sue? What about me? What do you what do you what do you bring to the table? What do I bring to the table? Well, I've got two th- should I just talk about the two things real quick? What, uh, yeah, sure. I'll talk about Patreon first. Um, so I mentioned before about Occupy Medical, and I do a lot of stuff just during the week working with people that I cannot build them. I just can't. Yeah, they don't yeah. have any money. <laughs> right. But being yeah. a community herbalist, the work uh, – I've been doing this for so long. The work just has to be done. So yeah. I am asking for people to donate to my Patreon account so that I can continue working with people. And with that kind of sponsorship, that means that – um, I could also continue training other folks that want to open up clinics like we have. And I've been doing that and I've just been kind of doing it for free. So we need community herbalism in this country and I am willing to be um, the voice of experience. So I just need support from people. And you can go to my Patreon account at www.patreon.com slash Sue Sierra Lupe. Okay. That's really cool. Yep, that's just one of them. Do you have any? Oh, do you have any more? Do you have any supporters yeah. already? So I do. I have a couple of wonderful supporters that have been brave enough to put in for um, 
one of them is a one-time supporter and then uh, um, the others are monthly supporters. Nice. Nice. Yep. So All right. Did you have something you else? Very much. Yes. Yeah, so there's also uh, Sierra Lupe Herbal Consulting and that's at uh, gmail.com. And that is my business that I do herbal consulting and that is for people get charged per hour for that one. So mm-hmm. that's that they get the same kind of service um, and I can come to people's houses and do things online and uh, that's available. So you've heard the genius. <laughs> now you can have that in your life too. <laughs> right. Ace High Heat Graphics, custom printed shirts and caps and everything else that you can wear. Um, they're specially they're specializing in um, event wear. So if you are a an herbal organization and you are putting on a fair or a festival and you need to have two three hundred shirts done, that Ace High Heat Graphics can help you out and save you a lot of money. Yeah. So, you know the other thing that Ace High Heat Graphics is doing is also doing branded wear for companies. So for within the company. So if you are a herbal organization and you have employees and people and volunteers that you want to have them all wearing like the same shirts or they would like to support the company by purchasing a shirt. That's another thing that ACP right. Graphics yeah, we're, does. We're, in mm-hmm. fact, we, we're doing a, a, a company store for a large client right now. So their nice. employees can go there and buy um, their shirts. Um, we did a promotion for that company and all the employees liked the shirts so much that they, they wanted to buy them for workwear. Nice. Mm-hmm. So they said, can you help us with that? So we're setting them up with a with an online store. That's fairly cool. And yeah. with the political season brewing up, I'm sure there's a lot of people that would want their slogans written on their shirts too. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. All right. And finally, the Herbal Nerd Society, for which we would not be able to do any of this. Right. Right. Yes. <laughs> we are thankful for the Herbal Nerd Society. When I don't want to come here some days and record because I got other things to do, I just remember there's a bunch of Herbal Nerd Society members paying me to get here. I yeah. Know. <laughs> I know. And they get content every single week. We put an article together. Uh, I've been uh, banging my head against the key- keyboard this month for Spilanthes. Right. Me too. That one's a challenging one because yep. it's not as well – well promoted an herb, yeah. Even though it is a really wonderful, wonderful it herb, really mm-hmm. is. I mean, I use Powerful it in the clinic plant. a lot, and uh, doing all this research, like, man, I'm underutilizing this plant, right? Yes, and I'm I'm doing the research on it, but it's challenging to find herbal energetics on it. It's pretty oh. sparse because hmm. it's not a part of the traditional Ayurvedic or TCM pantheons, and mm-hmm. it's really it's. Certainly was probably used by Western, traditional Western herbalists way back when, but there's not a ton on it. So Mm -hmm. I'm finding that really interesting. Uh, Well, it's a fabulous plant. I remember being in the South. Just Mm -hmm. you cannot miss it because it's a little red red dot. And it's, oh, oh, I'm in love with it. So I'm learning, I'm learning things and I love sharing the things I'm learning with other people. So above and beyond the the more advanced herbal articles for the Herb of the Month, uh, we also have access to all of the old podcasts from which we realized today we've done this for about six years now. So we have 180 yeah. episodes, 160 of which are in the backlog. So you have 160 episodes of podcasts that you can get a hold of if you're a practical or the Herbal Nerd Society member. And also you get an ad-free viewing experience. No mm-hmm. pop-ups, no you know right. banner ads, no... Google ads, it's just straight content. Yep. And so. the Let's Talk series where we have a, a yep. section where people yep. can listen to some of our guests give a, a 
specific information about their chosen topic. Mm-hmm. That's right. All right, on with the show. When the weather is right and the herbs are calling, we herbalists love to get into the wild for a little wild crafting that is harvesting medicinal and food plants that grow in wild or semi-wild or uncultivated places for the uninitiated. Whether you're going into the forest, field, or desert, there are a few tips and rules for wildcrafting right. Today we're talking with Christina Sanchez, founder of Every Leaf Speaks, and Howie Brownstein of Columbine School of Botanical Studies about wildcrafting in many environments properly. Now here are your hosts, Candace Hunter and Susier Lupe. I'm Candace Hunter. And I'm Susier Lupe. And, and welcome to Real Herbalism Radio. We have two guests. Look Yay! at the two of you. Oh, this is great. Hey. Hi, Christina. Hi. Hi, Howie. Hi. So good to have you guys both back. Oh, I'm very excited to be back on Real <laughs> Herbalism Radio. <laughs> what a sweetie. I'm glad that you're glad. And I bet you're glad that I'm glad that you're glad. Right? Oh, I'm glad. <laughs> I'm so glad. I'm glad. I'm glad. I'm glad. Oh, nice. There's so many layers. That sounds great. So many layers. So we're going to talk about, now that we've gotten all this wild out there, now we can talk about wild crafting. Yeah. And you two come from very different environments. Christina, you are a desert wild crafter by nature. And you, Howie, you've been mostly here in the Pacific Northwest very different environment. And I know that you've wildcrafted in other places. So we're happy to have the both of you to kind of talk about what that looks like. So who wants to start? Should we flip a coin and see? You start. Okay. Well, um, then in that case, I should say that uh, uh, many years ago, I wrote this wildcrafting checklist that goes over a whole bunch of questions uh, that a wildcrafter should ask themselves before harvesting anything. Some of those questions are easy to answer and some of those questions are, you can't answer them right away, but they're questions you want to think about as you're mm-hmm. wildcrafting that might take you years to answer. But uh, I wanted to mention that it is available uh, from down, downloaded from this site here at the bottom. Which is the botanicalstudies.net site? Well, how about your site? Oh, my site? Yeah. yeah put a link on there? Yeah. Yes, it will be there. Yeah, the uh, wildcrafting checklist. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's a very good one. So what kind of things do you think are that everybody just kind of takes for granted when they say, oh, it's sustainably wildcrafted? And does that yeah, does that mean the same to you as it does to people that put that on the label? I, I'm, I'm a leery of sustainably wildcrafted. That's mm-hmm. just me. I just uh, don't think people understand what that means usually. Right. So what does that actually mean or what should it mean? What should it mean? Yeah. What should it mean? <laughs> what should it mean? Yeah. Um, that's an interesting question. What it, what it would mean is that it's harvested in a way that the plants will continue to grow and that it wouldn't actually hurt the stand. Or perhaps it means that it improves the stand to harvest, which many plants are like that. Yeah. Um, but that raises a whole bunch of ethical questions. Improving the stand is, a, is an example I'm, I'm really cautious about. Like when we teach in the Columbine School of Botanical Studies how to wildcraft, um, it, uh, we take people through a whole year and right. most of the time we're not wildcrafting. Right. So they're watching the plants from the time the snow is melting and the first plants are coming up and they're going to the point where most of the plants are dying and the, are dead and the snow is, or asleep for the year and the snow right. is on the way. So they get this whole, whole big picture of what's going on. 
But our object in the first few years of, of, of Columbines is to teach people how to make as minimal of an impact as possible um, and to be able to see what's going on with the plants, to be able to understand what's going on. If we weren't going to be there and we didn't take anything, what would happen to that environment? What's going on? What changes are going on? Those types of things. Um, and uh, when it comes to wildcrafting food and wildcrafting medicine, um, a lot of what I see happening now around here is the concept of uh, harvesting food, um, uh, indigenous food plants in ways that increase the stand, which is sure. true. But uh, the question is, if you're going to go ahead and increase a plant population to make it so that there's more of them, right? then you're also saying that there's other plants that you're eliminating. Right. So I'm not saying that's right or wrong. That's, right. that's not an issue. The issue is, the yeah. issue is if you're going to make an impact, are you aware of what that impact is? Yeah. And I think that when it comes to sustainable wildcrafting, these are questions that a lot of people don't see. For example, I'll give you an example. You can, um, you, you can take a seed, you can say, well, or some plants, you can say, well, you know, um, I think skullcap should grow on this, this like, should grow in this river. It grows in all the local rivers. Right. So I'm going to go and plant some skullcap in there. I'm going to go and plant this food that I, that I want and plant it in there. I'm going to throw out some seeds. Mm-hmm. And people are like, well, this is a good thing. And um, however, um, indigenous people did that all the time. They went to places where food needed, they wanted food to grow, and they brought food with them, and they, they planted it there. And hundreds and hundreds of hundreds of years later, to people whose eyes can see, you can see this impact. You can yeah. see, oh, people have in the past, many generations before me, brought plants here. Right. So there's nothing wrong with that. But people think a lot before, like, oh, I'm not going to cut down that big tree. It's going to it's going to take year, hundreds of years to grow back. Right. But they're not thinking, oh, I'm going to plant this plant here, and in hundreds of years later, people will be able to see that I planted this. I'll bring women yeah. bomb to this riparian area. That's yes. right. It, it does so well. Yeah. And even if it doesn't take over, even if it's something that is stays within its the ecosystem without taking over, or it just is a plant that doesn't actually belong there. Mm-hmm. It's definitely yeah, it's still changing it. And that's not good nor bad. But it just is. Yeah. Before you make the impact, we would want to be able to see the impact. That's why for me it's it's when I think about here we are on a public radio and all these people I know, I think that your your subscribers now are like like seven hundred thousand and six or something. Many, many yes, numbers. and it's like you know, with that many people thinking about going out wildcrafting, there's a it, whether you're in the desert or you're in the the northwest or the southeast, um, wherever you are, all the food and medicine plants you want are there, mm-hmm. yeah. and um, especially people who aren't actually experience in wildcrafting that are going out the concept is to work on those plants that uh, thrive with disturbance mm-hmm. and grow in areas that are disturbed you get the same spiritual connection by harvesting uh, bed straw out of a local park here well not a local park but in a in a place that you'll be allowed to harvest it's clean your front yard right If you harvest bed straw in a wild place that's semi-wild, you know, you get the same kind of connection with the earth and you still get the same good medicine that you would going out to like a pristine 
five hour drive in the middle of nowhere. Right. So. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I like about your list is that um, in order to answer many of those questions, you really have to know the plant. Yeah. And I know a lot of people, they, they'll see something on the internet like, well, I'm going to go get that plant because it solves every problem that I possibly have. And so they go running out there and you can't answer the question about like the, you talked about elevation, which is a big thing here in the Valley, since there's so many different elevations to choose from, maybe that's not such a big deal in the desert where there's not, yeah, the very variations of elevations are not such a, not such an issue, but the, 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 if you don't know the answer to that, maybe you don't know the plant enough to be using it. Mm-hmm. So getting to know these plants is the first thing. And that may mean going and just observing them first, looking at them and seeing how they grow without stick. You don't have to stick everything in your mouth. We're not three years old, you know? Yeah. Well, you hope so. You hope so. Yeah. Some, some of the three-year-olds, you know, they are out there and they're definitely wildcrafting. I've watched my children wildcraft, stick all kinds of things in their nose and eyes and everything else. <laughs> Well, but they got you have to get to know it before it becomes proper medicine and that's part of that checklist. That's something that you've been working with too, haven't you, Christina? Yeah, definitely. Um there's been because wall crafting has become very popular lately and there's a lot of uh people that are posting about it that don't know, even like just gathering wild food, there's been a lot of courses um being taught mm-hmm. by Be like chefs. ancestral skills and mm-hmm. all of that. Oh, that's stuff really and... big. That's really big right now. Yeah. But so that there's been a more interest lately um in people yeah. wanting to wildcraft without even knowing about the plants. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, they just read something out of a book. Um and they want to go and gather that plant without developing a relationship with it and without understanding the land or where it grows. And we do have in different elevations, we do have plants that grow at different elevations in the desert because where I'm at, I'm at slightly over 3,200 feet. And then if I grow, go up higher in different elevations, not that I gather in the national park, but then I get up higher that I see different plants. Right. Whereas, right. you know, the pinion doesn't grow right next to me, you know, yeah. but if I get up higher in the pinion woodlands, then I'm going to see, you know, about 4,000 feet. I mean, the park is quite up high. So you do have slight variations mm-hmm. where you have to know the elevations and, and what plants are in that area. So I do that when I'm gathering like Yipasanta or if I'm gathering, um, if I want sagebrush, I have to go at different elevations. So I have to know that land. And a lot of that takes uh, getting familiar with it. Yeah. And, and the harvesting in the desert seems like it would make a really potentially great impact because there aren't as many plants. Like you know, the Pacific Northwest lush valley, you can't walk even across a paved area without stepping on plants. You know, mm-hmm. they're everywhere because there's so much water and it's lush. And they can recover very quickly because of all of the water. Exactly. So you have a lot of plants in the desert, but the recovery is slower. It's slower. So I, even though, for instance, creosote bush, um, Laurea tridentata, that is, it's, there's this one stretch off the 62 freeway where you literally get into a daze because you see Larea after Larea. It's just, it's this zone of Larea. And people don't understand how medicinal that plant is. It's, there's a lot of it. But people are coming out to look for like Yerba Mansa and they don't understand, you know, where she grows. So I know when I come across Yerba Mansa, I'm like so excited to see that she's there. Right. Um, Because it's, you don't see her very often. Um, So, but people overlook the common plants, Um, the Sahara mustard that grows out there. People overlook that and they don't consider it to be food or medicine. It can be both. Um, I use it a lot to cook with. And so they always want to go for these plants like desert lavender, um, 
people, yeah, I think Creosote bush is becoming more popular. Yeah. And, hmm. and uh, the more they read about it, and it's basically people read about it or there's a blog yeah. about it, and that's what spikes the interest in it. Yeah. And that's the problem because then people understand how they can cause an impact, even though it's such a, you know, so much of it um, where I'm at, they still don't know how to gather properly or they don't understand the impact that they could have on the environment. Uh, and because we don't get much rain, we don't. So you have to be mindful of where you're gathering from. You know, Basanta is another one um, that people want to gather from. And there's certain areas that I see it. You have to know where it grows. Yeah. And you have to be mindful of it. Because even though it might be growing in that one wash that you're at, it's, it's you know, it could be sparse. So you have to be, you have to watch the plants, like you said. You have to observe them and become familiar with the area. Uh, mm-hmm. Because you can you can wipe it out if you're not careful. Yeah, we have that problem here too, don't we, Howie, where well, there are certain plants that can be wiped out that people think are just common. Well, certainly, and that's it's that way everywhere, and it's vice versa. There's plants that can't be wiped out that people are cautious about. It's right. a little mixture of both. And um, uh, two points I want to make. One is uh, a definition of wildcrafting. Uh, I had a – one time I was um, – I had a group of students and it was one of those years where snow came really low and stayed low. It was one of those years where, you know, we were driving and we're ready to pick this plant, you know, in class and we have everybody get all prepared and we drive up and it's too snowy. So we can't uh, pick that day, but right. we go ahead and do the class. We don't, the students don't even know that they think we might still pick right up to the very end. Cause we right. don't say, Oh, we're not going to pick. We just continue the class. And, right. and then, and then, you know, the next day we, the next week we tell them to go ahead and bring the stuff. We might pick this week and we go out and snow is still not melted. We're going to the third week. We're going up. And someone said, um, Oh yeah. It was to Steven Yeager, one of the teachers yes. I work with. They said to him, well, are we going to wildcraft this week? And Steven is <laughs> like, we're always wildcrafting. Yeah. So the wildcrafting, the part where you gather the plant, that's what people think is wildcrafting. Oh, I'm going to gather a plant. Right. But all that looking it takes to learn the, the system, the locating, the uh, learning uh, learning the answers, the learning the earth, that's all part of the that's, wildcrafting. That's part of the and craft. And the processing. I mean, that's yeah. part of the craft. You and don't, the processing. You know, you don't, like, brew a beer and just show up and suddenly the beer has arrived. It's the Uh whole entire craft, which includes gathering the ingredients and preparing everything. And I mean, there's just so much to it. Right. And then um, the second point I wanted to make was uh, uh, in talking with Christina here. um, Yeah. It's things grow back slow in, in the desert and things are on a, such a different cycle than here. And um like, for us up here, we could say, what what's the size of the population? How much is here? I mean, yeah. the best time to see it is when it's flowering. Right. Right. So that's you can really see the most of it. But, you know, where Christina's coming from in uh, Mojave and, uh, and the other deserts down there, uh, it, it, a lot of the plants, you can... You might have to look for year after year after year. You might look for five or ten years before that that plant actually blooms fully. Right. One year you might get rain at the wrong time or not enough, and just some of them come up, right. you know. But then you come back to three years later, five years later, ten years later. There's like this very watery year, and you see how many plants are actually there. Right. So to even gauging the size of the stand can be so dramatically different. It takes it's uh, things are on a much different. Um, time frame and schedule 
to understand what's actually growing, like the ones that disappear but then come up with the rain. Yeah. So I'm talking about those in particular. And also with 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 thinking about uh, Christina talking about her, her lands down there, it's the same thing. There are certain plants that are like weeds, like she's talking about the yeah. Sahara mustard, the Sahara mustard, which um, there's plants like that that are weedy or grow in a weedy way that the concern for wildcrafting is much less. And I think it's really important for new wildcrafters to go to plants that you can't possibly hurt and try <laughs> to pick them as if they were sensitive. Yeah, you know, Because that's, that's where you're going to gain your skill is picking yeah. plants that aren't sensitive but pretending that they are yeah. and trying to trying to uh, pick in ways that are yeah. gentle. Gentle, yeah. yeah. That's a very good point. I've seen a lot of people just dig around and come back to places that I know I know I have some great plants there, and then I come back and there's holes in the ground. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It breaks my heart. It's frustrating. Well, people yeah. will say, well, the bears leave the holes. Who or, says that? <laughs> oh, a lot of people say that. Do they, they also move, leave their gloves the, and their sandwich bags behind those darn no, bears? They leave poop, but um, <laughs> the bears dig OSHA, Logisticum porteri, and they leave big holes. Mm-hmm. And indigenous... Um, current indigenous uh, harvesting of many food plants in arid regions live big holes, leave big holes, mm-hmm. which in these instances are actually better for the reproduction of those plants. So here's it comes down to with tending a stand. If you're going to, we have stands that we work with that if we harvested a third of the stand, it would mm-hmm. leave this massive devastation and five years later, later would be the best stand for that mm-hmm. plant. Right. So I, we don't do that. And I'm not saying that it's inappropriate to do that. I'm saying um, unless this is your, this is your training from your, uh, you know, generations of learning as to how to maintain your own personal family's food stands mm-hmm. as indigenous people may have, or um, uh, unless you're a bearer, you know, <laughs> you're just doing it, that, that, uh, that most of the people today that I work with, we, we leave plenty of holes. We know how to leave big impact. It, it's hard for us to know how to make minimal impact. And I think that's, once again, what we're striving for is the minimal impact mm-hmm. now to understand what that means before thinking about making a positive impact. Right. Well, coming back in some of the delicate areas, like the Mount Hood area and seeing Oh, there was these beautiful, beautiful Valerian Sanchez growing all over the place. And then you come back and there's just nothing but holes. It's just mm-hmm. gone. It's mm-hmm. just gone. And it doesn't come, it's, at least in the last few years, it's not, that's not coming back. Yeah, which is ridiculous. Because yeah. Valerian Sanchez loves disturbance. Sure. And mm-hmm. if done properly, once again, if done properly it, at Mount Hood and in other places like that, mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you were to harvest a valerian, take most of it, leave a big giant, fill the dirt so it's all messed up and I can all fill the dirt back mm-hmm. in, fill the dirt back in so it's just, you know, loose dirt. Right. And then take a piece of that root clump and stick it back in and water it. Should it's going to okay. love that. It's going to fill that area up. Yeah. And you're going to get the next, you come back in a few years and you have valerian growing there and without competition in that spot. It should yeah. have that. It's a very good thing, hasn't. you know. It's, it's not growing into the tire tracks where someone backed their truck up. Yeah. And, you know, over where the wild ginger and all of those lovely well, things are. Yes. It's, 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 no, all of my lovely favorite places where I was mushroom hunting, 
those are also destroyed too. So there's, it's, it leaves a scar with the person that enjoys that area as well as leaving a scar in the environment. And it makes me just, if somebody asks, well, where did you get that? I'm not going to tell you. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to tell you anything. I'm going to tell you to go to the store and buy this plant. And if it says it was organically grown, then you may, you may have it. And if it says wildcrafted, just don't touch it. That's what I'm going to tell people because I've seen so much devastation. That's the scar that I'm dealing with. Mm-hmm. Well, some things then, like personal use pine cones, you, you did something with yes. pine cones that totally amazed me with sugar, was it? You want to talk about that? Mm-hmm. Oh, I have it over there. Um, so I take unripe pinion pine cones and fill up a mason jar, just fill up a jar um, with them. And then you top it off with whatever, like maple syrup, honey. I use brown sugar, but you could use regular sugar. You don't have to add anything to like, you don't have to turn it into a syrup. Just put the brown sugar in there. You just put the brown sugar in there, but you can turn it. Even if you're using the base of a syrup, like honey, or if you're doing maple syrup, it's going to take on, or plus you put it out in the sun. So in the desert, I can have this ready in a week. (laughs) It'll be ready in a week. Yeah. Yeah. But you have to use unripe pine cones and it basically turns, um, turns into the syrup turns well the brown sugar will turn into a syrup and it'll end up tasting on takes on that flavor of the pine mm-hmm. and what happens is the the pine cones end up opening up and swelling and then you could pick the nuts out mm-hmm. and so they're very sweet mm-hmm. and soft and they are just open and the whole the I, we could try it later on um it just tastes really yummy mm-hmm. and so that's what I do with the pine I I play around with the food, I mean, with the plants a lot to see how I can work with it. Um, I also make, so one season I picked a bunch of pinion pine cones, but I picked them like right at the wrong stage. It was like after. But so, you know, I was learning and this is a thing, you know, you're you're learning. um, And it still came out great because I still use it. But I sat it out in brown sugar or in brown sugar for like months. It settled for almost a year in the sun and uh-huh. nothing happened. But the brown sugar crystallized and became really hard. Mm. So I ended up blending it up with the pine cones in there. And then I sipped it out yeah. the uh, pieces of the, the woody part mm-hmm. of the pine cones. And it ended up being a really lovely pine, uh, pine cone sugar. Right. So you find a way to use it anyway. Yeah, I'll find ways to use it. So I do a lot of my baking with that or dressing desserts with it. It's a lot of vitamin C. It's it's delicious. And you can mix it up with, I also will throw in some needles. So it does have, um, oh, and I've been also using resin lately in cooking. So I will basically grate resin into oil that my girlfriend taught me how to do that. Or I just grate it into my batter of cookies or cake that I'm making. You have some specific way of, of like rules around how to harvest resin properly. Oh yeah. Well, a lot of people, um, love resin and I've been asked to gather for people because, uh, resin, pine tree pinion. Well, where I'm at, it's pinion pine. Mm -hmm. So people, uh, yeah, people are gathering resin where they're taking it I mean, we all know you don't peel it from the tree. I look specifically to the ground. And the way that I do it is I observe the tree and I look to see where the resin's coming from. And I always look at the branches and I could see where the wound is. And then I look directly down and that's where I'm going to see all the resin that's hardened up and come to the ground. So um, I really stress that point because people, I don't know, in, in the desert, it's been really popular that 
people want pine resin. It smells amazing. Um, I see certain companies that are selling it and it, I could tell if it's, if it's done properly pretty much because I could see that it's aged and it takes on like this amber tone. It's very hard. Um, but people are grabbing where it's still, um, they're, ripping off the wound. I, you know, they're taking it off from the wound. So, uh, I always encourage people that if they're going to gather, um, to do it respectfully and look, you know, under the, you know, look under the, look at above and observe the tree, see how it's going. Don't go straight to the branch. Don't go to the trunk, right. look around because it was, it's covered. And if you just, I don't like to disturb the soil. Right. I've seen some pictures of how you do it mm-hmm. um, that you've posted at various points and it looks incredibly low impact. Oh, it is. Really being very careful to leave as much of the soil, like you said, undisturbed. And- undisturbed, yeah. I, I, it is big clumps that you could find just laying around. And another thing I like to look for is the downed um, pinion trees when I know that they're uprooted. Yeah. Uh, if you observe those trees, you'll see there's globs of resin that's on there and those globs that are just like right near the trunk yeah Yeah, so that's where I go for too is if I want it just for you know if I want to use it for blessing herbs that's one thing I could do it for but I really love making oils so that's why I that's my main basis I don't really cook that as much as I do infuse oils with it nice nice it reminds me a little bit the way that you harvest resin reminds me a little bit of what I've heard about the best way to harvest usnea in our area yeah, when it comes to um, when it comes to trees, um, when it comes to trees, and I, I know you're asking me about this, you know, but I think I want to talk about trees first. Yes, let's talk and, about and trees. And when it comes to talk about trees and shrubs, both yeah. those 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 uh, bushes, yeah, that's what, what you're often people call shrubs, um, the shrubberies. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it's really easy to hurt plants that are woody like that. Um, yes, and some sometimes not sometimes. Yes, but when it yes. comes to trees. Uh, what Christina is telling me reminds me of, of uh, well, you look at poplar buds, very, very yes. common around here. And people are love the poplar buds because yeah. it's uh, one of our highest salicylate containing plants and is so useful for uh, pain, like as- aspirin-like mm-hmm. pain relief. Yeah. And people, it really makes a difference to be making an oil with those poplar buds. Sometimes called balm of Gilead. Oh, yes. Although it's not the one that's from the Mediterranean area. No, but it's related. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they go to the same family reunions. Yes. <laughs> um, so those aren't actually flower buds. Those are leaf buds. Right. And when you pull one of those buds off in the spring, you're actually not removing a flower. You're removing a whole branch of a tree. Right. So yeah. you can go and pick those buds off the tree and you can easily you damage or kill or, a tree. Yeah. yeah. That's a, a major impact. Whereas if you just wait until after one of our many storms right. until at that point, <laughs> yeah. there are down branches and you can gather plenty of them. It just takes a little bit of time. Yeah. And, and, and in thinking about Christina um, harvesting the um, resin and taking the time and effort, mm-hmm. one of the things I, I consistently work with in wildcrafting is herb lust, mm-hmm. the desire to get that herb, the desire to have it now. Yeah. And I'm, I remember talking to herbalists when I was younger who would say, 
you know, this is what binds us together as herbalists that grow our wild crafting. We lust after these herbs. We want these herbs. We, we enjoy mm. them, you know. And it's yeah. so easy. You got to start yeah, picking. It it's so much fun. Yeah. You know, next thing you know, you have two years worth. Yeah. Next thing yeah. you know, it's like getting dark and you don't know where the car is. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that happens to me just like picking blackberries, you know, right? like after a while. Yeah. But what we try to teach the Columbines as a major point is that there's plenty of herb and plenty of time. Yes. And to be able to say, I don't need this today. I can come back later. I can watch it. You know, I can yeah. find a better place. Or maybe there is a better place. Or even know if there is one. Right. These kinds yeah. of things are, you know, the questions we have. So so uh, it's, it's okay to wait till the tree falls down. Mm-hmm. And once again, it comes down to what are you wildcrafting? We, yeah. You asked me about sustainable wildcrafting. And the yeah. thing is, is where do I see sustainable wildcrafting? It's on some product. Right. So yeah. you're talking about commercial wildcrafting. Okay. That's not really what this is. That's not what what this podcast is even about. We're talking about us as herbalists going out and connecting with the earth. We're talking about personal use while crafting, Mm -hmm. or even if we, even if we are making a small amount for friend or family, friends and family, that's a very small amount compared to, um, you know, supplying, supplying the country. Yeah. Yeah, And getting that, you know, uh, Pine, pine resin bathroom toilet bowl cleaner, you know, right. it's like it's suddenly a different amount, you know. It's yeah. so, so this that's what I was thinking about was yeah. the uh, was the uh, care and going slow and with shrubs. And yeah. and um, it's different here in the Pacific Northwest because I mean, things grow back really quickly, and uh, you know, yeah. and uh. You dig, you dig a small hole in the woods, it fills in in a few years. Right. You know, it's, it well, that's, like why, a, that's why what she was talking about with the resin reminded me of the usnea because, and I can't remember, I wish I could remember who taught me, but the person that taught me said, never, ever take new usnea off a living tree. Yeah. Only pick it off the ground. Oh, yes. Only on branches that have already fallen. Yes. And period. Like, yeah. absolutely. And the, the person, whoever it was, whoever you are, I'm sorry, I can't remember who you were. Mm-hmm. But that that herbalist said the reason part of the reason that you do that is because usnea helps the tree to breathe and keeps helps keep the the general respiratory system of the tree in mm-hmm. good health. And at the time, I didn't really understand what that interaction really was, but I got it that that's a community, the tree mm-hmm. and the usnea. That's a plant community. Yeah, and it's not my place to start wrecking homes. So I'm going to take it off the ground where. This, it's already the tie has already been severed. Well, you know. if you pick it <laughs> off the ground, then more will fall to the ground. If you pick it off the tree, if you pick it from the top of the tree, mm-hmm. how's it going to fall down to this bottom parts of the tree? How's it going to yes. fall down to the ground? Yeah. So if yeah. you pick it up from the ground, that's where it's uh, uh, the lichens. Um, uh, I know Christine has been like looking at lichens and going, what, what are these? <laughs> right. Well, because it doesn't happen where I live. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. very rare. You we need have a good, damp environment for those. Yeah. We have many lichens, and, um, and uh, when it comes to lichens, it's just, to me, they're very, they're, they're a little bit harder to understand to put yourself in their place mm-hmm. because they're not one organism, they're two. Yeah. They're uh, uh, an algae. And sometimes three. And sometimes three or more. Or more, yep. yeah. they're like an algae that that needs the water and changes sunlight into energy. And then there's a fungus yeah. that can change sunlight to energy. And so you have an algae covered with a fungus. Yeah. And they're living together, hanging out. And they're, a lot of them are really old. Like, yeah. you know, you start looking at some of these lichens that are 
It could be many, many, many years old, or it could be way older than you. Yeah, you could so, be looking at a tree that's a couple hundred years old and some of the lichen on it has been around since the very beginning. Right. So, um, yeah, I, uh, I, I, I'm in awe at how different they are. And, uh, and I'm glad that, uh, that uh, Esnia is remaining. The, old, uh, the lichen started to become very popular for a while. Yeah. And I'm glad that it's kind of fizzled out in popularity because there are many other plants that we could use instead of that. Yes. Having it be local is nice because it's local and we can use it, but yeah. it's very, very light. And when people start harvesting that commercially and you're looking at, so how do you get a, how do you get a thousand pounds of this? You know, yeah. it's like how many, how many pickup truck loads is that? Yeah. It's quite a few. Quite a few. You try yeah, to do that scary. on the open market. It can yeah. be very scary. And it is, yeah. it once again, it's like, uh, as we, as we know on real herbalism radio, <laughs> there isn't really that one herb you have to have. No, there really yeah. isn't. There's always one by you that does almost the same thing. Or maybe what's actually even better for you. That's right. Because sometimes... Some of the effects aren't exactly what is really best for you. Mm-hmm. It's because yeah. popular don't mean it's the best thing for you. Yeah. But there are companies out there, and I'm going to do this little thing that I always do when we talk about this, is if you have an herbal company, do not put a contract out on the herb. Contract with a wild crafter. If it really has to be wild crafted, it really, really does, have a contract with the wild crafter themselves someone that you have been working with that has proof about what their sustainability is. And if, if it comes to the point where you've discovered it can be grown on a farm instead, that's, that's your option because you are making a big impact. There are companies out there that they just put the contract out. We're looking for this herb. And that is so irresponsible. Having worked in the in- herb industry for many, many years, I know what the effects are of that. And that's toxic. That hurts us all. That's not good medicine. Well, putting a contract out on the herb is just that. Yes. Putting a contract out on That's the right. herb. So yeah. what happens yeah. is uh, companies like the ones that I used to work with would get phone calls from people say, hey, uh, this company put a contract out on the Valerian Citrus, for example. And my friend was at the end of the line. And so he has a truck full of this and would like to sell it to you at a really good rate right now. And my response was, of course, as the herb buyer, I won't buy that. I don't buy it from pirates. That's you. The learning place for you is I'm, I feel bad about that. Find somewhere else. But I am not going to be part of uh, making sure that that person damages the environment again and again. So, well, it'll be wasted, but next year it won't. So please learn from this. I'm sorry you're in a bad space. But I'm 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 not going to buy the thing that destroys the home that I live in. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the key points in wildcrafting is uh, coming back the next year to see what kind of impact you make. Yeah, and that's like the key. That's like the key of the of yeah. the whole thing. I mean, um, I've had many of the uh, older older generation than me, as if there is one, um, <laughs> a verbalist. That, you know, that's how they figured this stuff out. Yeah, you know, and and that's 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 how you can have a stand of food in, for generations in your family because yeah. you come back if you don't come back. And I've seen this problem here, and even more so in the in the desert. Because, you know, you, you you cut a branch in the desert, and that branch, you see that for many, many, many years here. There's so much biomass, it grows out pretty okay. quick, you know. Yeah. But it's like people will go and they'll harvest a certain way because they think that's the right way. 
And um, I've seen many, many stands in, in uh, Arizona and, um, and in California where the plants have been harvested improperly. And the plant slowly, branches slowly die over the next like 15 or 20 years. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, well, it's, it's kind of amazing. It's, it's kind of harsh. If the people came back and saw that that type of wildcrafting and taking that piece in that way is doing this to the plant, they wouldn't continue to do it that way. They switch the other way, which mm-hmm. might be, you know, might be better. But if you don't come back, you don't know. And if you're right. coming to different stands every year and doing it, then you leave a trail of sick, sick and dying plants. Right. Which is, uh, anyway. That's very true. So I have a question for both of you. For folks, whether they're wanting to wildcraft to actually do picking or just getting to know the plants, on trail, off trail? Should people be going off trail or should they be sticking to the trails? Uh, Where I'm at, I feel that you have to stick on the trail. Um, But I actually... The places that I go to are not on, there's, I go off. I'm not even on the trail. I drive offside the road. There's no trail. Um, But I'm mindful of where I walk. And that's why I'm noticing a lot of people don't pay attention to where they're hiking through. So what are some of the things, the keys, if you are going off trail in the desert, for Mm -hmm. instance, what are some of the key ways to properly walk through that area? Well, we got to be mindful because we're here, everything, nothing pokes you here. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and there it's like every, there's there's down choya, there's um you got to be really careful for your own safety because if you're if you're not wearing the proper clothing you're going to you know get hurt. Wildlife. So you got to be in in wildlife too and be mindful of you know if you're going for a plant uh, for instance yerba santa or brittle bush if you're going for a plant like that uh, you got to be mindful because rattlers like to hide underneath these plants. Mm. Um, they like the shade. So a lot of these plants, even the creosote bush, you know, they provide a lot of shade where you don't see the critters. You have Mm -hmm. to be very cautious, like, uh, scorpions and rattlesnakes is a big thing. Um, one of my biggest things is just, um, okay, so that's one thing, your safety. Another thing is don't disturb an area that we have an issue with tortoises. Um, Mm. you know, they're endangered. So you want to be mindful of it. So if you see a den, don't go near it. Um, something that the National Park just recently posted that I thought, or Joshua Tree National Park, um, Joshua Tree National Park just posted that I was thought was really nice, was that um, a way to to know if you're close enough to an, an animal is by holding your thumb out, mm-hmm. and if you can see the critter from far, if you can still see it with your thumb up, you're too close. But the further you go and you have your thumb held out, and then you so just if you like line up your it, thumb as if you were covering, covering up the animal up. from the and if you can't, like <laughs> yeah. And if, so if you you basically want to get to the point where it's you're so far away that you're covering up with your thumb. Nice. You know, you have to be mindful of the critters as well. The you know the rabbits, the uh, especially the tortoises are a big issue because people want to get close to them. So when I'm gathering, I am actually paying attention to the life that's around me. Right. It's not so much about going off trail. I'm looking at, you know, what life is around me. Uh, so that's a big thing um, to be careful of. And I don't like to pick off the trail per se, because I don't want, you know, somebody that's been peeing on a bush, you know, to, you know, like that's the kind of things I think about when I'm gathering. So I do, I, I walk in an area where it's not going to be disturbing um, or threatening any life. And that's how I do it. That makes a lot of sense. Well, 
It's kind of a tricky question. Because yeah. on a podcast, you don't want to tell people to be going off the trail. Right. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, in my in my work, I would say that there's a couple of reasons to leave the trail. One is um, uh, contamination, mm-hmm. pollution. I figure brewski zone. You want to get out of the yeah. brewski zone, which is how far a person will carry a cooler beer. <laughs> you get beyond there. That's a good and one. And then you kind of like, it's a little bit cleaner, you know. Yeah. But... I'm not saying that everyone should go off the trail. It really depends yeah. on where you are and the people who are listening to this. It's it, it, they're in many different places. Right. Uh, I've been to places where you go in, you go into the setting, the wood setting, and you're not allowed to leave the trail, and the the place is, looks pristine. Mm-hmm. And everywhere around there, because of the number of people and the way people use it, the native flora is gone. Right. So to tell someone, oh, go into this place and go off the trail is inappropriate. Right. However, there's a lot of places where it's okay to be off the trail if you're going to harvest. And uh, another thing I think about it is that uh, I like to leave the plants on the trail for the people on the trail who will never leave the trail. Right. So that's kind of an essential thing. Plus, yeah. if you actually are in a national park or public lands, they're going to tell you not on the trail. Not in the campground. They're going to want you to walk away. However, I also would once again say to those who are listening to the podcast that if you have to wonder about on the trail, off the trail, you probably shouldn't be harvesting there. You should probably be staying on the trail and just observing. Right. And go to the other places where that's not an issue. Like, for example, if we start talking about plants like blackberry, Mm -hmm. (laughs) blackberry root is a wonderful astringent and has all these uses that, you know, we could spend a whole podcast just on blackberry root. And I hear in your backyard, you have with the, uh, what is that, you pick blackberry yeah, root out in the do. back edge you there? Exactly, like, was yeah. it 15 cents a pound or something? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's great. Well, it's kind of a joke, but here you can pick 100% of the blackberry root. And that's not going to even touch the stand. Right. It's going to come back and take over your house in five years. Yes. Yeah. And it has been trying to. And I hadn't even thought about doing the U-Pick. But honestly, if you've got any herbal friends who want to U-Pick back there. Right. (laughs) So that type of plant. Okay. So we look at in our area, St. John's Ward. There are places in the woods where people are getting paid reclamation to remove the St. John's wort that's right. going into these native places. Yeah. Okay. With the right connection, you know, yeah, you yeah. can pick it off the tree. You would still want to pick it on the trail because for, for pollution, but you know, so yeah. there are plants that the, the, like that, you know, we, in our area, we have mullen. Okay. Mm-hmm. Once again, you don't want to be on the trail. You right. don't want to be right on the side of the walk, but you're not going to damage those mullen stands. Right. You know, I mean, they're going to go away when the robust. disturbance is gone. And then if you yes. then if you drive your car over that area, it's going to come back. Right. You know, yeah. those are the yeah. plants. The ones that you plant in your garden and they don't grow, but then even they keep planting it, but then over yeah. in the in the driveway, the they all come up. They're all up there. Yeah. 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 Those yeah. are the plants that if you're not used to wildcraft and you focus on those plants, you can get a full... Full materia medica, you can get a full, all the dietary needs you want off of those plants, be it here or even be it in the desert where Christina is from, because there are plants like that, that are either growing in disturbed areas like the, um, like the mustard or plants that are weedy in, in their environment, meaning 
you can yeah. pick a plant and, and, and unless you destroy the environment, it's going to come right back because right. It, it likes disturbance. Right. And these right. are the plants you're looking for is to start with the ones that, that you can't hurt. Right. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, usually for myself, I try the most time, most often when I leave the trail, it's often usually mushroom season mm-hmm. and I'm leaving the trail for mushrooms mm-hmm. and I'm leaving the trail usually in areas that I know will eventually be logged. Mm-hmm. So I know that I'm doing the best I can to not create excess disturbance, but I also know someone's going to come and destroy the area soon. That doesn't mean I should create more destruction, but I feel like if I accidentally screw something up and step on the wrong plant, it's not necessarily going to be like a long-term problem. If that makes sense. It sounds horrible, <laughs> but, but, but I mean, I think about that and I try to step as lightly, like literally I try to watch where my feet are falling and uh-huh. not stomp on things, mm-hmm. you know, push the fern aside as I'm stepping down so that I'm stepping on the ground and not on the fern, for instance. Luckily in our area here yeah. in the Cascades, in the Western Cascades, in the places you're probably going to pick mushrooms, most mm-hmm. of those plants can be stepped on. Yeah. And I know, and you're, I know not, yeah. you're not really going to hurt them. And, yeah. um, and I'm aware of that, but I feel like it's important for me to practice that because there could be a time when I'm in an area where it isn't okay to step on the plants. Well, there you go. Or there could be a plant there that, for whatever reason, mm-hmm. has managed to grow up in this right. area and I don't want to step on it. So I, I feel like it's... Yeah. Just intelligent and respectful. Just like yeah. picking the plants you can't hurt as if they were sensitive. Yeah, so exactly. In time, in, you know, so then you end up going someplace like an area in the desert that's much more sensitive and you're practiced on you're it. Already, yeah. You already, yeah. Know, Worst like, case scenario, yeah. you just learn to respect and respect mm-hmm. is part of the healing tradition. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Wow. Well, thank you very much for both of you for being here. I appreciate hearing your wisdom about wild crafting yes. in the two different areas. Howie and Christina. Thank and you. now we need to know how do we get a hold of you? Christina, let's start with you. Uh, my website, everyleafspeaks.com. And on there, I have links to my social media on Instagram and Facebook. Howie? <laughs> uh, let's see it's going to be uh, www.botanicalstudies.net and of course there's the Columbine School of Botanical Studies page and uh, like us on Facebook Columbine School of BS on Instagram <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah well thanks so much I really appreciate it okay and, and you know as, what we always say you know what we always say put, put an herb on it, it. Statements made about herbs and products on this podcast have not been evaluated by the United States Food and Drug Administration, FDA, and are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent disease. All information provided on this podcast or any affiliated websites is for informational purposes only and is not intended as a substitute for advice from your physician or other healthcare professional. You should not use the information on this podcast and its affiliate websites for a diagnosis or treatment of any health problem. All Always consult a healthcare professional before starting any new vitamin, supplements, diet, or exercise program before taking any medication.